This is Possibility Politics with Jeff Stein, the show where social, political, economic, spiritual, and philosophical discourse goes to live. We never give up the high moral ground, take no political divisioners, and fight until the bitterness ends. And now, here's your host, recovering hope addict and paid volunteer in the American experiment, Jeff Stein. Thank you so much for listening. Thank you, Juan Velasquez, for putting the show together uh, today on Possibility Politics, where the place where we feelize our way to a more perfect union, a sitting senator calls for an ethics investigation of himself. If you've saw, seen the news already, we're going to break it down because... Wow. Uh, Second, Republican tax cutters in uh, Congress now. Republican tax cutters, help me help you. Uh, Today, I want to maybe run through the ideal Republican tax policy, one possible scenario of it, and you be the judge of whether the House and Senate and what they are proposing matches that intent. Because it's on, baby. Second, uh, if Roy Moore was running 10 or more years ago, how would this be different The answer to that question, with the context, will tell us everything about where we are and where we're going with this, in my opinion. Third, let's uh, let's revisit the liar's lens I've talked about on the show before and answer the question of what percentage of Americans will stay with their tribe (laughs) no matter what. And when is no matter what appropriate? You know, what is a time when no matter what is right? And finally, or fourth, uh, why did Jeff Sessions deliberately fail to disclose Russia meetings and the content of those meetings? I'm going to make a case for Jefferson Beauregard Sessions III that I'm pretty sure you have never heard. There's a side of this, and I think there's a psychology about, behind what he's saying and doing, uh, which might surprise you. That is all going to be coming up. But the news that just uh, broke recently is that sitting Senator Al Franken has been accused by uh, Leanne Tweeden, who's a, uh, talk sh- a radio host like myself, uh, on a talk, sh- a talk show uh, across town on KBC. And she was with Al Franken on the USO tour back in 2006. And I, I tried to cut down before the show her, her account of it, but it's about seven or eight, ten minutes long. And so I, I really couldn't uh, bring it down to something and still get the meat of it. So I, I challenge you, unfortunately, to go listen to that on your own so you can hear it. But she basically talks a story about she was on the USO tour with him, first show out, and he puts together these sketches, which he does because he's an SNL comedian. And this sketch included a kiss. And he said, let's rehearse it, Leanne. And she said, I don't need to rehearse a kiss. She kind of blew it off. Then he said he really demanded that they rehearse it. She, she compared him to Harvey Weinstein in the sense that his demand being uh, something he wouldn't was unrelenting. And then when he you know, demonstrated the kiss, he uh, apparently used too much tongue and that grossed her out. She even says she washed her mouth out in the bathroom and uh, just kind of had a a discomfort with Al for the remainder of the tour, but kept it up and kept going. And uh, now she's speaking about it because it's part of the the Me Too situation. Nothing since then has happened. Now, the other part of that is this picture, uh, which takes a, a photo was taken, Al Franken in this shot. You'll see it everywhere. <laughs> Google it. Uh, they're on obviously on a, on a plane, you know, and she's geared up because she's in military gear and she's sleeping on the plane. And he took a picture. Somebody took a picture of him kind of holding his hands over her boobs, uh, mock grabbing them. And the, the headline says he groped me. But um, I think grope actually means physical contact, whereas he didn't have physical contact, apparently. Uh, I don't know. I mean, I wasn't there, but he took the picture as if, right? But either way, those are the allegations. And so what happened was, is Al Franken immediately did a statement. And I want to read it because it is such a powerful lesson on on our discovery and how we can look at these subjects and maybe kind of get clean. 
you know. So here's what Al Franken said. The first thing I want to do is apologize to Leanne, to everyone else who was part of that tour, to everyone who has worked for me, to everyone I represent, and to everyone who counts on me to be an ally and supporter and champion of women. There's more I want to say, but the first and most important thing, and if that if it's the only thing you care to hear, that's fine. It is I'm sorry. He wants to make that point first. I respect women. I don't respect who men who don't. And the fact that my own actions have given people a good reason to doubt that makes me feel ashamed. But I want to say something else, too. Over the last few months, all of us, including and especially men who respect women, have been forced to take a good hard look at our own actions and think, perhaps shamefully for the first time, about how those actions have affected women, right? I've certainly done those kind of soul-searching. For instance, that picture. He's referring to the picture of the boob grab. I don't know what was in my head when I took that picture, and it doesn't matter. There's no excuse. I look at it now, and I feel disgusted with myself. It isn't funny. It's completely inappropriate. It's obvious how Leanne would feel violated by that picture. And what's more, I can see how millions of other women would feel violated by it. Women who have had similar experiences in their own lives. Women who fear having those experiences. Women who look up to me. Women who have counted on me. Coming from the world of comedy, I've told and written a lot of jokes that I once thought were funny, but I later came to realize were just plain offensive. I'm a comedy writer. I know this one. I have a lot of jokes I've written that now I go, yeah, that was just awful. But the intentions behind my actions aren't the point at all. It's the impact these jokes had on other others that matters. And I'm sorry it's taken me so long to come to terms with that. He continues, while I don't remember the rehearsal for the skit as Leanne does, I understand why we need to listen and to believe women's experiences. I am asking that an ethics investigation be undertaken, and I will gladly cooperate. He's asking for an ethics investigation of himself. Finally, he says, and the truth is, what people think of me in light of this is far less important than what people think of women who continue to come forward to tell their stories. They deserve to be heard and believed. And they deserve to know that I am an ally and supporter. I have let them down and am committed to making it up to them. You know, on the evangelical far right, there's this idea that you can forgive the sins. I hate the sin, not the sinner. And I think this is where there's a great common ground, because here you've got Al Franken, which is who's obviously a liberal on the left, as you would say. Right. And look what he's doing. He's saying, I am owning this. It was wrong, and I not only know that we have to continue to listen and be heard, but it's what I've been saying on this show, too, is that I challenge everyone to look at this subject and go, and, and I also remind you that you may not remember something the way somebody else remembers something. It may have been a flirty kind of whatever to you, uh, but it turned out that it was offensive and put them in a position of discomfort for the duration of their interaction with you. And Al Franken is making the point, too. It's like you want, and I'll just put it this way. If there's a a person out there, a woman out there who feels like Jeff Stein, me, has in some way done something, I want the opportunity to apologize to you. I am not aware of anything. I have, like I said, with Al Franken, scanned my brain, and I know I've made some flirtatious comments and lascivious lascivious, uh, statements, and I've done some jokes that I'm not proud of. And if any of those offended somebody, please give me the opportunity to apologize. It will be a growing experience for me. I will learn and be a better person, which I think is the tone of Al Franken here trying to learn and be a better person to yourself and to the people you care about, especially an entire gender, which you have great affection for. Okay, so uh, coming up in a minute, we're going to get into the uh, help me help you Republican tax credits, uh, as well as Jeff Sessions and what's going on in the Russian investigation. There's so much, so many news today. Uh, it'll all be here on Possibility Politics. 
This is Possibility Politics. I'm Jeff Stein. This is the purple state of mind with the amber airwaves of grain. Yes, that's cheesy, but it's totally true. Uh, <laughs> thank you for listening to us. Check us out on Facebook and Twitter. Love your responses. Love your contradictions. I'll take it all because uh, I'm here to learn. That's why I do this. I do this because uh, we are literally in the greatest social, political, economic, spiritual, technological renaissance in the history of mankind. And I'm here to enjoy it and benefit from it and uh, be one of the people that gets to ride the front of that wave. And in that respect, this same topic we were talking about of sexual harassment. Love this. I just love this. Oh, my God. Why would you love this? All these people are talking about a horrible, horrible story. Yes, we're finally talking about them. And it's allowing both the bad guys and the good guys to get over it, So, which is really fantastic uh, <laughs> because we both need to work this out. We all need to work this out. Good guys, bad guys, good women, bad women. We're finding out even like there's Terry Crews and there's, you know, we're, uh, guys happening to guys on a homosexual case. You know, you've got uh, the stuff with Kevin Spacey, of course, and even there's, you know, watch Brian Singer. made That shoe may drop pretty good. Look that one up for yourself. I don't want to do any judgments uh, until there's judgments to be had. <laughs> and even if there are, I don't want to do judgments. I want to do observations. I want to look at it and say, okay, so you did that. What's going on, man? Uh, or you were, you know, scared by that. What's going on? Uh, how do we overcome that? How do we feel better about it? Because it's just absolutely crucial that we grow through this. And I love that we are because we are. We're talking about it. Smaller things, big things, because the ultimate conclusion is it's going to be about context. Everything is about context. If you're a lawyer, you know this. You know, you try a case because you go, well, what? It, it, well, something was stolen, but it was stolen out of charity or stolen it out of, you know, whatever. You have to know the context. And uh, it's a kiss. Is it an unwanted kiss? Is it a grope? Is it an unwanted grope? And, uh, you know, and so context is everything. And the way we determine what is appropriate context is not only an individual thing, but as a group, as a society, is to talk about it and run through it. And you look at what Al Franken says and said, okay, so he made a giant mistake. He owned his giant mistake. Do we let him back in? Do we forgive him? As again, the uh, both the far left and the far right would like to say, the spirituals, the religious types, let's forgive him. Do we forgive him? And uh, say, yeah, okay, you seem to have owned it. And, and, and we need to get better at measuring the genuineness of our explain, explanations and excuses. This is all part of the uh, the same you know topic, and, and I want to emerge from this feeling like uh, I have we have a healthy gender and sexual relations with each other that we're fulfilled and satisfied with these great human or urges that involve sex and love and romance and butterflies and and uh and also uh, respect for each other's when it is not appropriate when we're not reciprocating and knowing what it means when you are reciprocating and getting better at uh, understanding what, what the fears are behind it we have to do another show on this and i don't know if we'll get to it later in the thing but um i think with with some really very pressing issues in the uh in the area of the Republican tax cuts that are being thrown around here in the House and the Senate, um, it, it made me think of the clip from uh, Jerry Maguire. I am out here for you. <laughs> you don't know what it's like to be me out here for you. It is an up-at-dawn, pride-swallowing <laughs> siege that I will never fully tell you about, okay? <laughs> Tom Cruise. God, help me! <laughs> Help me help you. Help <laughs> me. me help you. <laughs> help me help you. Of course, the last one cracks up. Help me help you, Republicans, because I'm not very convinced 
that the ideal you are trying to create is, and for those on the Republican side that are carrying water for you and trying to explain away these ideals, I'm not sure it's what you are hoping it is. Now, cynically, if you've been watching the news, you know that they've kind of openly meeting Gary Cohn, you know, from the White House, a financial, obviously, and uh, master of this entire, as far as well as the CEO of Goldman Sachs and whatever, a mastermind of this uh, tax cuts, one of the masterminds, as well as sitting congressmen on the Republican side have basically said, hey, it's going to make our donors happy. It's going to make CEOs happy. And that's kind of why we're doing it. It's like, oh, okay, all right. But there's not a lot of Republicans who really were hoping to just make CEOs and donors happy, even though that's just kind of a necessary evil, maybe, they look at it. But it's not what they set out to, right? It wasn't the purpose you intended, I don't think. And uh, meanwhile, by the way, when Gary Cohn, you probably saw this video clip, he sat down in front of a room full of CEOs and business leaders, uh, 75 or so people, and the panelist was asking him about the tax thing. He said, oh, no, the CEOs love this, and they're going to take these big cuts to corporations, and they're going to invest it in workers, and they're going to spend all the money on wages and works. And the moderator simply asked the room, show of hands, who's going to take that extra capital from the tax cut and put it into uh, you know, uh, capital investments in, again, wages and, uh, and expansions? Five people in the room raised their hand, and they raised it so tepidly. One even person raised their hand, uh, scratched their head, and went back down on their lap. It's like they felt like they wanted to raise their hand and say, well, I, we want to do that, but we're not going to. <laughs> so even this hope that it's going to happen, again, cynically speaking, it may not work. But to my Republican friends who – sorry, that sounded a little Shatner. To my Republican friends, help me. Uh, help you. You want, I think, you want a meritocracy competition free market. Market is that a fair thing to say? That your overall reasoning is we want it to be meritocracy means obviously based on how hard you pull up yourself up by your bootstraps, straps, and competition based because obviously on the Republican side. There's a strong belief that competition creates innovation, which creates excellence, creates inspiration. Great. Great. I love it. That's an inspiring idea. And then combined with the, you know, what we call a free market, which is basically trying to uh, allow those two things, the meritocracy and the competition, to have enough freedom to exist. Well, right? And so if that is your belief, first of all, and that is your purpose, congratulations, go with it. But help me help you. Because if you want that to exist, meritocracy, competition, free market, then fairness of the rules has to be an equally important endeavor, right? It's a competition. If you're playing football and the referees call penalties and pass interference and roughing the passer and and holding only against one team, then it isn't a competition anymore. And it isn't a meritocracy. It's a joke. And it's cronyism and aristocracy and what the things that Bernie Sanders and Hillary Clinton, everybody complains about. Even Donald Trump complained about it, right? But when that's what got him elected is he said, I'm going to end this kind of favoritism and meritocracy for the few. Not meritocracy, aristocracy. So you must believe, if you want to believe in competition, meritocracy, free market, then you must believe that the fairness of the rules is an equally important endeavor, Right. It's not a competitive meritocracy if select people or industries or religions or charities have an institutional advantage, (laughs) right? So how do we get that going? And let's take, for example, something like uh, the flat tax. Republicans love this idea of a flat tax. Great. You know, and this is where you've got to be, again, the fairness of the rules. Someday, uh, you know, if you hope for some sort of 15 percent, you know, flat tax, that's great. Maybe that can happen someday. But you got to be 
realistic on things like the deficit. Because until you pay down our trillions in debt and find a way to still support the elderly, the disabled, and those in the process of healing, uh, we're going to need more like a flat tax of 28 to 35%. <laughs> in order to make that work. And then you say, well, I'm not, you know, 20, 35% tax, uh, that'll be terrible. Poor people will be, you know, struck. oh, well then is that why we have a progressive tax rate? <laughs> so that while you're paying, now again, you pay down the debt. You guys, you know, and I, I think most sides are pretty enthusiastic about that. Uh, although that's the current tax cut plan, the cut, cut, cut plan that is being laid out from the House and the Senate right now adds $1.5 trillion to the debt, I think, over 10 years, right? It's always over a period of time, 10 years usually. So $1.5 trillion is added to the debt. And what is it now? How many cents out of each tax dollar goes to interest on the debt? It's something like 38 cents of every tax dollar goes to interest on the debt. So if you want a 15% or something flat tax rate, you want to bring those those rates down, you're going to have to pay that down just like anybody would in a household, right? got to get your debt down so you're not making 10 minimum payments of, of 100 bucks each. And then you can use that money to uh, actually not charge people a lot of taxes, right? You don't have to collect as much tax money if you're not paying 38 cents of every tax dollar on the debt or whatever it is. It's somewhere in the 30s. Um, I got it. There's probably a, a website that tells you exactly what it is. I'm sure there is. So unless you want a bank, you know, you got to get the deficit down. Unless you want a, a nation that is of the banks, for the banks, and by the banks, uh, <laughs> then you got to get the debt down. And that's going to be a little tricky because the banks don't want your debt down. Right? That's one of the reasons the secret, to, you know, not Republican, but it was Democrats too in the corporate side, the corporate Democrats. The little dirty secret is, is hey, uh, the banks who give us tons and tons of money will be happy if we keep the debt going because most of the American debt, people think it's all owned to China. No, no, no. Foreign, foreign holders of U.S. debt is actually very small. It's mostly American banks that are international banks. Obviously, they're not just American banks, but they're, they're international banks. So that's, that keeps bankers very happy when we have a very large debt because a large swath of tax dollars goes right to the interest, which means right to the banks to carry the notes. And so if you believe in the fairness of the rules and a competitive meritocracy, then uh, why are you giving the bank to banks? Uh, just giving free money to banks, that doesn't seem fair. Uh, to average Joe, if everyone's paying their share and paying their bills. So and we used to agree on deficit. That's why uh, Bill Clinton beat George Herbert Walker Bush, because uh, Ross Perot was screaming about debt and about the the in, the, uh, the increasing debt that increased under Reagan and Bush, Herbert Walker. And so it cost them. But now we got so used to debt, we don't even, you know, we just let it go. Right. So you can sell, you know, the Republicans, again, let me help you help you. You can sell this to billionaires uh, you know, and CEOs. But if you want to sell this this meritocracy and competitive meritocracy, then you got to make the rules fair. And that's going to be more important than just making it uh, simple or something. Because um, we know that, you know, because that's what happens is, 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 is the Republicans think to themselves as well, I'm going to push this through because uh, I can sell it to billionaires and the you know CEOs because uh, they will just go, they will be very thrilled and they'll give me instant money for it. And that will keep me getting elected, supposedly. But when you're scared, you take the safest path. And so that shows that Republicans in Congress are more scared than they are principled. So help me help you get back to your principles. Case in point, I'll give you somebody who's sticking to hers. Susan Collins. You remember Republican from Maine? She introduced the $250 tax credit for teacher supplies, uh, annual $250 tax credit for teacher supplies. In other words, if you're a teacher, you can write off your pens and your pencils, which is sad in the first place because teachers don't even get paid that much anyway. We should probably cover their pens and pencils. But 
uh, and cetera. Uh, but it, it, she started that in 2002, and it was set to sunset and expire in 2016, and it just got renewed. And in this current plan, they're taking it away. In the current tax cut plan, that $250 credit for teachers is going away so they can give uh, a larger chunk to millionaires and barriers. And give an example here. If they do this, two-thirds of the tax cuts in this bill go to corporations. Two-thirds of the cuts go to corporations. Now, the last third of that goes to citizens. Most of it goes to the high, to trust fund babies and the high brackets. They're getting like some 70 or 80%, depending upon who you ask, uh, of it going to the upper brackets. And then a little bit of a tax cut to some people in the middle class and the poor. And then some tax increases to some of the folks in the middle class. And again, it adds $1.5 trillion to the debt, and it's going to cut several hundred million in Medicaid and Social Security and Medicare. And you're done if you do that. And they're so scared, they're pretending like it doesn't actually happen. There was a exchange. They're just not even getting it. Claire McCaskill got into it with uh, Orrin Hatch again. They sometimes battle. And she called him out on <laughs> that, that what's in his actual bill that he refuses to believe is in the actual tax cut. There are no cuts to Medicaid in this bill. I beg your pardon. This is the CBO score, Mr. Chairman. I'm reading right off the CBO score. $179 billion in reduced Medicaid subsidies. Well, there are no cuts. <clears throat> beg your pardon. That's where the money's coming from. Where do you think the $300 billion is coming from? Is there a ferry that's dropping it on the Senate? The money you're spending is coming out of Medicaid and subsidies to people who make less than (laughs) 50,000. I mean, dang, right? And that's and it's funny because people say, "Oh, the Democrats are really getting it together." Yeah, well, I, you know, not to not to disparage their wonderful new spying, which they're getting, which is awesome. Uh, it's also a lot easier when the other party, when when a Republican like Aaron Hatch, come on, Uncle Orrin, what are you doing, dude? Read the dang bill. The thing, the tax cut says that it's cutting Medicaid and Social Security and Medicare. So. Uh, it's just in the math, man. Just because you say it doesn't happen doesn't mean it's not going to be true. <laughs> it is true. And so, guys, if you want this meritocracy, focus on fairness of rules and you'll get it because no one's going to disagree with it. If it's inspired, they will disagree with it if it's based in fear and you're afraid and your donors are going to kick you out. That's not going to be a selling point we got to make CEOs happy, and maybe they'll throw some money down to people on the poor end. That's nah, not going to convince people. It just isn't. All right, next. Uh, if Roy Moore was running 10 years ago today, how would this be different? That's the question we want to answer because it'll tell us a lot about our situation with sexual harassment here on Possibility Politics. This is Possibility Politics, the place where social, political, popular, and unpopular culture is seen through the lens of possibility, purpose, and a little sarcasm. I'm Jeff Stein. Thanks, Juan Valesquez, for putting the show together. And we're talking about, first of all, I got to say, I I love talking about tax policy, (laughs) right? Exciting. No, it is, because here's why. You know, the budget, any kind of a budget, is a moral document. It says it's a statement of, of what you consider a priority and where because obviously where you spread your money around, it's like if you had a will. Right. And where who you give your money to is a, is a demonstration of how you felt about those folks. Uh, and that's what this is. 
And one of the things they slipped in so far, we'll see if they remove it back out because I don't think it'll ever get through Congress, is our, uh, tacit the repeal of the Mo- Obamacare mandate, which basically they say will do that insurance death spiral that they always warn and attack Democrats for supposedly invoking because it will cause an instant 13 million people to lose their insurance and it will cause the remainders to start to drop off because they expect insurance rates. Again, CBO, independent uh, organizations that the um, uh, nonpartisan organizations, I should say. And it, they say that the, uh, the the rates will go up 10, 20, 30 percent in the immediate years that follow. And so you'd have this actual debt spiral. It would just keep uh, skyrocketing to where nobody could afford insurance anymore. More people off insurance. Less people can afford it. Da, 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 go around and around. And that's happening right now. Well, meanwhile, um, it's only scared. It's funny because the Democrats are saying, wow, the best uh, uh, promotional cause we had for Ob- Obamacare was the Republicans being in a position to repeal it because as they've attempted and failed repeatedly to re- try to repeal it this year, it has driven Obamacare signups up. Uh, 1.5 million more, I guess, signed up for Obamacare this year. It's it's the highest numbers it's seen. So people are starting to feel like their health care is threatened. So they're making the extra effort. Even when the Trump administration cut 90 percent, I'm not exact, 90 percent of the advertising and outreach budget for Obamacare, which is, of course, what you know, you've set up websites, you talk to people, you send advertisements, you mailers, uh, you try to reach people who haven't signed up yet. That was cut by 90 percent. So you, and yet people still signed up because they uh, they were cut off on their resources and they still insisted. So uh, that's. That's pretty exciting stuff. This is good, good uh, change that's occurring because people are getting closer to what they want instead of what they don't want. Now, I hated Obamacare. I don't want government control. Well, wait a second, though. I want Ob- I want health care. I want health care to th- survive and thrive. Oh, well, okay. Now people are fighting for that. So call, find out your number uh, of your congressman. Call them. Uh, emails and stuff are great and everything, but those tend to be kind of overlooked. Faxing is actually kind of ironically effective. <laughs> if you know anything about congressional offices, I've worked with some. You get you fax them, and they have to. Uh, they kind of have to read them. So calls and faxes are good. Let them know. Let them know how you feel about the. Um, it's working. That's the difference. They are responding. This is a very active populace, and if you want to add your voice, you will be glad. Glad you did, and it will have an impact because this is how it works. This is a participation sport, and the participation is high, including so much that the whole nation is watching Alabama to see what happens at really kind of the high point of this gender discussion of sexuality and what's appropriate and what's inappropriate. You got a guy who is trolling for teenagers and banned from the mall for doing it. Uh, you know, uh, that the hilarious tweet is that um, a, a person can't isn't allowed to buy a Cinnabon. They shouldn't be allowed to be a senator. <laughs> so uh, and how is it going down there? A couple quick uh, updates. You probably heard about this. Uh, Yellowhammer News is a uh, conservative news outlet in Alabama that has been very praising. And as soon as this happened to Roy Moore, they were like bending over backwards to say, nope, it's fine. He's a righteous man. Well, Roy Moore lost Yellowhammer News. They officially said, yep, nope, it's too much. It's gross. It's terrible. And you need to move on. Uh, the Moore's attorney continued to fumble it. I won't even play. Look for the clips out there. It's just embarrassing how badly his attorneys are are fumbling this. But, but of course they are. How do you defend... You know, trolling predatory pedophilia. You can't. Calling a, his, the high school girl in trig class. having. Can you imagine that? You heard this one, right? So he, he tried to date this girl at the mall. She said, no, 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 16-year-old girl. She goes to high school. He finds out during the conversation what high school she lives at. 
works at, goes to, and calls the school, demands they bring her to the office for a phone call, which means on the intercom, this is 1970s, right? On the intercom, late 70s, early 80s, saying, you know, so-and-so, Miss So-and-so, please come to the office. And so all of her peers are going to be like, what was that about? She gets called to the office. She thinks she's in trouble. She thinks it's her dad or something. It's Roy Moore saying, hey, will you go out with me? You need to go out with me. And he, she said no again, of course, but was stunned that this is happening. And there's a whole list of it. Every day we get new ones. And 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 that's, we, we know now who Roy Moore is. It's not real hard to figure that one out. So now it's about us and how it's reacted. So you got Ivanka Trump. She jumps in and says there's a special place in hell for people who prey on children. Great. And again, as soon as you say that, you're going to hear context. Like, for instance, the time that Donald Trump bragged about being able to go into the Miss Teen Universe dressing rooms while the ladies were naked or partially naked and kind of walk around and, you know, shake babies and kiss hands. Uh, amongst a, uh, you decide what the babies in the hands are, and uh, little hands, uh, wrong babies. Uh, so you know this, you're gonna have to have that spotlight, and it's time to decide how you're gonna react to it. And folks like Al Franken are helping it too. So how is this going to go? How far is the tribalism going to go? And this is an important thing for those who are getting really frustrated by this. If you're watching it, going, how can these people still stay on Roy Moore? And I, I'm fairly confident. In fact, the NRSCC, the National Senatorial Campaign Committee for the for the Republican Senatorial Campaign, they released a quote unquote poll saying that uh, the Joe, Doug Jones, the Democrat, was 12 points ahead of Roy Moore. But interestingly enough, they didn't attribute where the poll was from, sampling any no information about the poll. They called it an internal poll. And all of us suspicious folks immediately said, I think they're just releasing fake numbers. But the point is, why would they release fake numbers? Because they want everyone to know that Roy Moore is toxic and they want people to start getting off that bandwagon, but they can't force voters and they're too afraid. And here's an example of white privilege itself, white male privilege. Uh, Bear with me on this one. When the senator said, well, I believe he should step down. I think we're asking him to step down. We're asking him to step away. Well, there's an advantage of being a male, a man. You get asked to step aside. When you're a female, or a, or a not-as-favored race, a lot of times you're not asked. You're just kind of told, and you're demanded. It's a different tone. We're asking Roy Moore as another man to you maybe step down. You know, in, in, in 1991, George Bush dealt with this with David Duke when he was making a run for president, George Herbert Walker Bush. And he unequivocally, and this is the difference I was talking about 10 years ago, 10 or more years ago, the way politics were before we became into this last wave of hyper-partisan tribalism. Before then, someone like Herbert Walker Bush said, David Duke is unacceptable, disqualified, no way, he must be stopped, I will vote for the, the opposition. And like Jeff Flake did, he said, I will, vote for, I will run to vote for a Democrat, he said, if Roy Moore is the other choice. And like Shelby, uh, Richard Shelby, the other senator in Alabama, he said, well, I'm going to write in another candidate. And that's fine, but you really, this is a two-party system, and if you believe this is true, you're going to go a long way to healing if you say, you know what, it's time to vote for the other party, uh, because the one that is uh, I, my party's good, I'm still good with the Republican Party, uh, I'm, but I'm, I'm working on it. But in this case, uh, this person is so awful, I need to vote for the Democrat to prevent my own party from being marred and disgraced by a victory by Roy Moore. It's your own self-interest. You want to throw Roy Moore under the bus for the purpose of saving the party. Help me help you save this party. You need to continue to be the morality and the purpose that you claim to be. You can't just do you know, moral equivalence for uh, political expediency. You will be caught, and it will not work. Um, 
case in point. So the tribalism, right? And the tribalism, how far will it go? And, you know, it might go all the way to the end. There's going to be a certain percentage. A certain percentage of people are going to vote for Roy Moore. And I say that, it's not so you'll go, oh my God, that's the most disgusting thing ever. Who would do that? That's just horrible. Because you want to learn to let that go. If you're going to follow politics, there will always be a certain percentage you know, 22% of people approved of Richard Nixon the moment he was impeached. <laughs> you know, they still thought he was a great president. There will be a percentage of people who will not leave their tribalistic victimhood identity you pick. And you want to start letting that go and go, okay, that's fine. Uh, <laughs> you want to let it go and just say, look, hey, 67% are on board. So that make, that's cool. And vice versa. The other part of it is, when 51% of somebody decide an issue in a partisan tribal environment, there's a rush to consider the matter settled and attack the opposition, the other 49%. Can't do that either. You gotta accept where people are. That's the idea here is to go, is to see it moving, see how we're evolving, trust in that, know that right makes right, that love wins, and that will carry you through. All right, next, the lightning round, as well as Jeff Sessions and what he said that caused a big stir when we return to Possibility Politics. We've reached the final segment of Possibility Politics. I'm Jeff Stein. Thank you, Juan Velasquez, putting the show together. This is the place where we try to provide a more satisfying perspective on life, liberty, or the pursuit of happiness. That's the point. Still good. Word's still good. Still try to do it. So um, the last topic, or we have several, we're going to have a lighting around, which is really amazing. So many little neat, fun stories that, uh, that broke recently. But the Jeff Sessions was back in front of uh, Congress, in this case, the House, and was asked about the contradictions with the Russia meetings that he didn't disclose, then later disclosed, then equivocated about. Now, let me give you a fairly rough uh, hit uh, first from 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 Ted Lieu, uh, Congressman Ted Lieu, right here in Los Angeles, where I broadcast. Uh, we're not far from his district. In fact, uh, I've worked with Ted Lieu's staff. Another little uh, fun fact about me. That's uh, something I can't disclose. <laughs> So anyway, no, I can't. Anyway, that's another story. It's not that interesting. Okay, uh, Ted Lieu talking to Jeff Sessions. Well, as Attorney General, you have a security clearance, correct? Yes. And to get that security clearance, you submitted a security clearance application, also known as an SF-86 form, correct? That's correct. I submitted such a form when I served on active duty in the U.S. Air Force. And the form requires you to certify under penalty of perjury that the information submitted was true, complete, and correct to the best of your knowledge. You certified your security clearance form, correct? That is correct. I'm going to, on the video screen, show you a question from that form. And it says, have you or any of your immediate family in the past seven years had any contact with a foreign government, its establishment, such as embassy, consulate, agency, military service, intelligence, or security service, etc., or as representatives, whether inside or outside the U.S.? The answer that you gave was no. What you just told us under oath was exactly the opposite. So I'm going to ask you, Mr. Sessions, were you lying then when you filled out the form, or are you lying now? No. What I was told by my executive assistant uh, when we did this form earlier and then again when I was uh, nominated for attorney general, that the uh, FBI authority says... Members of Congress 
and effectively government officials meeting people on an official basis. You were not required to list all these contacts. Nothing in that okay. question says you get to answer any differently because yeah. you're a, a U.S. Ted senator Lear. rather than, say, a young police officer. Isn't that right? Well, uh, Nothing in that question authorizes you to answer any differently. Isn't that right? I would say that nobody at the FBI or any other place, to my knowledge, said you left that blank. Surely you've met with some foreign officials in the last seven years. Uh, I, I've not had any private business dealings or any uh, things of that nature. My contacts would be in the normal course of let, let me ask you one senatorial of your, business. Let me ask you one of your interactions. So I thought that was a reasonable answer. You said un- See, now, Ted Lieu there uh, cornered him pretty good. It was a little rough. Uh, and then he used the excuse of the FBI didn't care, right? The FBI didn't care or that it was uh, separate to an inquiry about, you know, his meetings as a campaign cap capacity. You know, like he, he, he met with uh, all kinds of people as a senator. So that didn't count, right? You were just asking about his campaign. Now, you say, why is he doing all that? What is that, all that equivocation? Uh, let me give you a little more piece of him because I want to put the, all the different psychology together from what he responded to. At the end of his testimony, he did a thing which was uh, another moment which was pretty pretty powerful. Check this out. The gentleman may respond if he chooses to. Mr. Jeffries, nobody, nobody, not you or anyone else uh, should be prosecuted, not me, or accused of perjury for answering the question the way I did in this hearing. I've always tried to answer the questions fairly and accurately. But to ask, did you ever do something, you ever meet with Russians uh, and deal with the campaign? You're saying Mr. Carter Page, who left that meeting, according to the press reports, and all, and, and I guess his deposition or interview uh, has been reported as saying, I'm going to Russia. I made no response to him, didn't acknowledge it. And you're accusing me? of uh, lying about that? I say that's not fair, Mr. Jeffries. I would say that's not fair, colleagues. Uh, That's not on any indication that I in any way participated in anything wrong. And the same with Mr. Papadopoulos. He talked about, it's reported uh, in, in the paper, that he said something about going to Russia and dealing with the Russians, and I pushed back and said you shouldn't do it. So I don't think I'm uh, uh, is right to accuse me of doing something wrong. I had no participation in any wrongdoing with regard uh, to uh, uh, influence in this campaign improperly. Yeah. And, and, and of course, on the left, there's been this rush to say, Jeff Sessions is a liar. He didn't disclose it. Isn't that, you know what? Y- yeah. He blew it. Uh, it's pretty clear that he blew it. He wasn't clear. He wasn't clear enough by any measure. But what's going on? What's the psychology? How guilty is he behaving? And everything in his behavior says to me that he's scared and he didn't intend to get involved. I don't think he was involved with any of this Russian stuff. I think it was happening. Definitely. We've got lots of evidence it was happening in the campaign. In fact, the evidence admitted to by the campaign and Donald Trump Jr. and what have you. So I think Jefferson Sessions was so enamored to be part of this campaign, seeing that he could become attorney general. This is awesome. And this stuff is kind of going on on the fringes with Papadopoulos and what have you. And he's like, "Uh, that didn't seem right, but okay." And then he realized, of course, that it wasn't right. He's smart enough. He can see that there's Russian collusion. 
I don't think he was part of it, which is why he's just trying to say, look, I wasn't there. I wasn't involved. I, I don't think I don't think the FBI was upset about it um, because what's important to him, it's not he's not just being a partisan hack uh, defending. And, and here's one of the reasons why I know why. Here, l- listen to Jeff Sessions when he was talking to Jim Jordan of Ohio, who was determined to go after Hillary Clinton. What's he going to take? to actually get a special counsel. We will use the proper standards, and that's what I only thing I can tell you, Mr. Jordan. Well, I, I appreciate that. You can that, have your ask... idea, but sometime we have to study what the facts are and to evaluate so, whether it meets the standard well said. that so requires let me ask you this. If in fact... a special counsel. You see, that adds numbers. He does not go on, he won't go after Hillary because he looked at the Uranium One stuff and go look up what happened to Shep Smith of uh, Fox News because he dared to explain how Hillary couldn't possibly have done the Uranium One effect at all because of not only timing, but actually not receiving. Remember again, it's the pay for play with no pay and no play, right? And so Jeff Sessions, instead of being some sort of big partisan hack, he's saying, look, I'm not I can't investigate it unless there's a standards of investigative, you know, necessity and there isn't and I'm not. And this keeps saying to me that Jeff Sessions, here's a guy, you know, let's get into his head a little bit. He's looking for redemption. He is looking to be, uh, ever since he was an U.S. attorney, he wanted to be the, 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 the attorney general. That's why he didn't quit, even though he's completely humiliated by Donald Trump, because he wants to have a legacy. He wants to be known as somebody who did it right. And you can say, oh, he has a racist past and he has, yes, he has some squishy past. There's no doubt. But just like Al Franken, he's trying to redeem himself and say, you know, okay. And it makes it messy because your ignorance and your fear of failure, uh, which he has obviously abundance quantities of, it makes him have to kind of avoid things like disclosing Russian meetings because he knew it was wrong, but he doesn't want to be associated with it, but he doesn't, but he didn't do it. And so I, I know I may be one of the few people who kind of defends Jefferson Sessions, but I think he's uh, trying to be a good man. He really is. And uh, his his behavior with respect to Hillary and with respect to the Justice Department and not allowing Bob Mueller to be fired, this says that he actually seems to care more about how his legacy and how he ran the Department of Justice is seen as an honor and as nobility than it is to win. Because if he was involved in Russia, if he was one of the people who colluded, I can assure you, he would be thrilled to fire Bob Mueller. He would be thrilled to go after Hillary Clinton to distract from what he did. I think he's innocent, and that's why he's trying to have some integrity. And even though his Republican colleagues are quite determined to make him find something with Hillary, he ain't going to do it. He ain't going to find it. So... All right. Uh, a few more quick things before we, we go out of the show here. The uh, Consumer Financial Protection Bureau, remember that was invented? It started with uh, Elizabeth Warren, but the Republicans made it impossible for her to do it. So she ran for Senate and became a senator and, and made it even worse on them. Anyway, Richard Cordry, the, the, the head of that, is resigning and the, because the bureau is just being under attack by the Republicans and Trump. And it's like, guys, again, you want the rules to be fair in a meritocracy of competitiveness. And the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau, uh, during these few, first few years of its existence, have returned $12 billion to consumers from banks and lenders who f- defrauded them or overcharged them for fees and for um, you know interest rates that they didn't deserve. And so <laughs> you want these guys to be part of the rules so that you can have a capitalist society that is fair. The competition has to be fair. And part of that fairness is that a big bank doesn't get to just bombard people with fees with no recourse. If they do it, they need to be busted for it. Justice. Remember? Justice. You guys like that stuff. We all like that stuff, right? 
So, other things. Uh, the House Democrats are bringing in record fundraising numbers going into the 2018 midterm. So whatever that's worth, because one of the other things they have learned, they're starting to learn more and more that the Republicans, please help me help you, is that you can survive on single and small donations from from individual voters and average donations in the, in the $75, $50 range instead of the $2,300, $22,000, you know, just big donors. Uh, that is continuing and expanding. The NFL continues to make Colin Kaepernick's collusion case for him. I wish I had more time to talk about that. We'll catch it on another show. But, uh, wow, they keep demonstrating that there was an effort by owners to punish Colin Kaepernick. And you can't do that. It's in the contract of the NFL signed with the players. So it's in violation of the contract. Again, you set the rules, you make the rules, you got to obey the rules, right? Also, uh, the Australians just passed same-sex marriage. It's legal down down under. You insert your uh, euphemism joke there. Uh, so <laughs> that is good. Um, another story that broke down recently, broken recently, is that taxpayers are paying the legal bill to protect Trump business profits. Because Donald Trump is ignoring the emoluments clause, which require that you cannot earn foreign money while as a sitting president, because it's an emolument. It makes you compromise to their needs. Well... Uh, there has been spent millions of dollars already from the Justice Department. Ten Justice Department lawyers have been and paralegals have been tasked with defending Donald Trump's uh, emoluments violations. So he is having to, and, and these lawyers are $133,000, a year apiece to defend that, uh, argue that it's not a violation of the emoluments clause. Yes, the taxpayer is paying to defend his violation of the U.S. Constitution. But that's what you do, and that's kind of how it happens, I guess. I don't know. Uh, a couple other quick ones. The uh, Your house, by the way, I don't know if you know, is a gigantic bug habitat. They did a new study that showed that there are as many species of bugs inside your house as outside. The house, you know, I would say that if aliens ever come to this planet and analyze it, they're going to say, and in the final analysis, they'll say, you know, this is basically a bug's planet, and then these weird creatures called humans who think they own the planet because it's you're not it's bugs bugs own this planet right totally uh and one last one as we're going into thanksgiving politics apparently is really ruining people's thanksgiving they've done a great study out of what was it ucla uh, and washington state university did a joint study and they analyzed through phone data and how people uh location data of how much time people spent with each other at Thanksgiving. Because you can tell when you leave, and, and it's all anonymous data through anonymous data driving uh, you know, uh, aggregators. But So they're not being invaded. They're not following you. But as it turns out that more than ever in the last Thanksgiving since the Trump era, since the last two, since the Trump election era, and then now this era, has been uh, people have spent an average to 20 to 30 minutes less with each other at Thanksgiving. And it said here also Republican voters, and I identify that by voting habits and like that. Republican voters were more likely to bail on Democratic families than vice versa, just slightly. And reductions in family time were steeper in areas that saw more political ads. That's interesting, too. The more ads there were and the more you were you, know, you were in a swing state, the more likely you were to leave Thanksgiving early. Let's hope that's not the case. I'm going to get one more show in before Thanksgiving. Thank you so much for listening. I think this is what is necessary in the second part of the discussion, right? To look at what's going on and then say, this is good. This is working. We're evolving. Yes. That's why we listen to Possibility Politics. Uh, so thanks for doing so. 
This has been Possibility Politics with Jeff Stein. The social, political, pop cultural discussion show that looks at life through the rose-colored eyes of the almost criminally optimistic Jeff Stein. 